You're listening to New Food Order, and Danielle and I just had a massive fight. <laughs> Not a fight, it was a discussion. I mean, I stuck my tongue out at you, so that's true. Pretty, for my it's son, true. that is a fight. You say potato, <laughs> I say potato. I mean, you know what I mean. Yeah, no one says potato. <laughs> You're listening to New Food Order, our investigation into the business of tackling our climate and social crises through food and agriculture, brought to you by Ag Funder and Food and Tech Connect. I am Louisa Burwood-Taylor. I'm the head of media and research for Ag Funder, one of the most active venture capital investors in food tech and ag tech. And I'm also a journalist and editor of our new site, agfundernews.com. And I'm Danielle Gould, founder of Food Tech Connect, the first community for food innovation, best known for our weekly newsletter that tracks all the business tech and investment trends from farm to fork. Louisa, I can't believe it's almost time for our holiday break, which I'm very much looking forward to. (laughs) Yes, we definitely all need it here on the team of New Food Order. And time flies when you are listening to your new favorite food and ag business podcast. (laughs) Right. So we know that this can be a busy time of year for everyone. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be bringing you some short and sweet mini episodes that help to get the juices flowing over the holiday season so that we're ready to hit the hardcore stuff in the new year. Oh, my goodness. Don't scare them, Danielle. I mean, it's not exactly hardcore, but we are going to start really digging into some of the topics that we've touched upon so far. It's a little bit in depth here. We're talking about business models, finance, design, biofoods, regenerative agriculture, carbon, and more. But before we start our first venture into the world of understanding people and planet-friendly business models, we wanted to share part of a recent conversation we had with one of our friends and sources, Errol Schweitzer, who's the former VP of Grocery at Whole Foods. He's also an advisor to Astoner Ventures and was formerly an advisor to Patagonia and Good Eggs. And Errol also has a really great podcast called The Checkout Podcast. Errol has been in the belly of the beast, so to speak, for over 25 years, and he uses that experience to help him think really big about how to change the system. So as we were putting together one of our business model episodes, We called him and said, hey, can you jump on a call with us for five minutes to just help us think through how we're framing this? And what we thought was going to be a five-minute call turned into a pretty mind-blowing schooling session over the course of 40 minutes that we just had to share parts of with you. So bear in mind, it's just a brief taster of our business models yet to come episode, but we think it will help explain why we feel business models is an important stop on this journey. Because while this conversation with Errol is obviously just one person's opinion, as Danielle said, he's done an absolute ton of research in this area and he's been working in food retail for decades. So he really represents a growing school of thought on this topic. And he brings some pretty out there ideas. Uh, Not quite sure what I think about all of them, but as we're here to inspire you and take you out of your comfort zone to explore what's possible, I know I'm keeping an open mind and I hope you all will too. And so if you think about the conversation we had in last week's episode with Julia Collins, you'll remember that we touched on the challenges for smaller businesses developing alternative business models in the food and ag space. 
If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly encourage you to go back and do so. So that's what we're kicking off with Errol today. What is the current corporate lay of the land in food and agriculture that has led to these challenges? So Errol, we would love to hear your thoughts on the top business model challenges for food and agriculture. I think that the first one is this focus on short-term gain, short-term profit, as opposed to what's best for the long-term, what's best for the broader stakeholder community. This is particularly driven by institutional investors, asset managers who are really focused on what they call, quote, the fundamentals of business, net income, essentially, or how much revenue they could stuff into their portfolios on a quarterly basis. And having worked for a publicly traded company, we used to call it the quarterly guillotine. Having been on the boards of publicly traded companies as well, it's just an incredible amount of pressure and it really guides the day-to-day business. That's my first major issue, which I think we're seeing day-to-day very glaring. Yeah. Keep going and one of the things that I want to ask about is what the implications of that short-term thinking are for startups as well, small businesses. Well, for, for startups and small businesses, I mean, how do you compete with these conglomerates that monopolize large sectors of the economy? So if we just look at where I'm based in retail, as well as manufacturing CPG, 65 to 90% of category sales for dozens of categories. Most categories you see in the middle of the grocery store are heavily dominated by a handful of companies. M&M Mars, General Mills, Kellogg's, Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Coke, Nestle, etc. And so because these are primarily, except for a handful, they're primarily publicly traded companies that push on their profits guides their business models. And obviously, the way they do business with retail is to make sure that they own and control as much of that shelf space as possible. And with retailers, some of whom are also publicly traded and have revenue models based on slotting fees, extracting trade spend, trade revenues from companies, as well as very aggressive, ambitious category management schedules where they're always looking at new products. But in order to get new stuff on shelf, they're always discontinuing stuff that isn't selling as well. It's quite a whirlpool. makes it very hard to get a toehold. And especially now where you've got investors feeling a little gun shy about investing in new products because they see it's not only an inflationary market, but you have customers trading down and trading away. The price demand curve has shifted to the fact that people are actually buying less food at most grocery stores, which is very problematic. Why would food be elastic in demand when it gets expensive? That's scary. And that's why food insecurity is up. But the point tying it back to your question is, Investors are loath to invest in new products because they see these consumer trends buying a lot more private label. They're buying comfort foods. They're responding to the high trade spend of conglomerates and big manufacturers who are heavily promoting or trying to market and advertise their products, maintain that shelf space at retailers. And guys, this is what I do for a living. I work with a lot of smaller emerging brands. And it's really tough out there. Folks are having to compete not only on price and manage their costing, but also try to figure out ways to pay for the slotting to get on shelf, how they're paying for promotions to compete with private label, or they're competing on private label bids so they could diversify their income streams. It's not without hope. It's just very difficult. And having 
sat across the table and negotiated with a lot of these big CPGs over the course of the last few decades. I don't really see a way to stop them from maintaining their dominance except through public outcry and some regulation. So you just heard Errol use the term slotting fee, and we just want to make sure that all of our listeners know what that is. So a slotting fee is a cost that manufacturers pay to place their products on retail shelves. It's a one-time charge that ensures that brands will be able to stock a new product until its sales performance can be established. Louisa, we should probably tell people what CPG means. CPG stands for consumer product goods. So basically, any product that you buy in a retail shop or online is considered to be a CPG product. So any food product, any shampoo, makeup, things like that. Oh, thanks, Danielle. So that's a brief introductory insight into Errol's thinking. And of course, you could argue that true disruption and better alternative food products that truly engage customers will disrupt that dominance of the large CPG players. And we've seen that happen in other big industries like automotive, where Tesla is literally disrupting the massive conglomerates that aren't dissimilar in their dominance of that industry as the large CPG companies that Errol mentions. But for him and others that you'll hear in upcoming episodes on business models, they believe we need new models in food and agriculture to enable more diversity of foods on the shelves. But he also makes a wild suggestion here about the way forward for part of the food system that's not working for business today. So as Elisa mentioned, we spoke with Errol about a wide range of challenges within the food and agriculture industries. We talked about things like the lack of enforcement around worker protections, the lack of true cost accounting, racial inequities. And we're going to preview some of that in this episode. But one of the big challenges that Errol talked about was ownership, the concentration of ownership, that is, that has led him to start thinking about alternative structures. And so that's what we're going to start with right now. I think the concentration of ownership um, in private capital and, and wealthy individuals who own the majority of shares, but also own the majority of stock and companies. I think we need to look at models of common ownership and public ownership from cooperatives. I think we need to expand ESOPs, which are private stock ownership of companies. But I also think we need to look at public ownership in terms of industries, like municipal ownership, for instance. Plenty of cities own businesses. Cities own airports and public utilities such as water or electric. And I think we also need to look at, even if cities are not owning a public monopoly, quote, a utility in certain sectors of food, I do think we need to see more public and municipal and common ownership in the food business, whether it's retail, wholesale. I personally think that all food delivery should be a utility. It's not profitable. No one makes money on food delivery except for maybe a small handful of companies it's always a net loss. It's a net investment by retailers. And it's probably the one thing that we could do to, all, to solve food access issues, more so than food banks or SNAP. It's to have a legally mandated program say that anybody who needs food can get it and we'll bring it to you. <laughs> That's the key. It's always the last mile. Right? We talk about the last mile in the food industry all the fucking time as the toughest thing. Nobody makes money on it. And I was just reviewing some stats the other day of how the losses at like Uber, DoorDash, and Instacart's a basket case these days. Amazon was at 30 plus billion dollars a year in food delivery expenses. They're not making money on that. They're subsidizing that through AMS, through their marketing services. 
which is a business that's at least 2x what their web services even is. Their marketing service is well over $150 billion, maybe $200 billion a year. It's bigger than Kroger. Yeah, that's how they pay for the delivery, right? So when we're talking about how do we solve food insecurity, I know we start talking about ownership here. That's why I want to bring that back. I think we need to look at different models of ownership because one of the other externalities <laughs> is the fact that so much ownership is offloaded to venture capital and investors who are betting on long-term growth that they're thinking, oh, I got to just keep plugging money into this venture because one day it's going to take over the world. It'll be the next Amazon. We'll corner the market and create another monopoly in this sector or that sector. And that's not sustainable in the least. And if you're going to have these type of subsidies where they're running a loss on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe that's not the venture capital who should be footing that bill. Maybe we should be thinking like, Public agencies, public utilities, they just need to break even. And you could change up the model here so that there's not as much revenue extraction and salaries and incentives and bonuses to high paid executives or investors. And then you could look at how you can make the delivery ecosystem more equitable. Like I said, just break even. Even if we're running it at a small loss, it's publicly owned. It's commonly owned. And so ownership, I think, is a big deal. And you also look at what concentration of ownership in terms of white and male the concentration of power. Obviously, the delivery side of things is just one point of it, but also when you're talking about manufacturing and wholesale. And what I want to emphasize here is I don't think you need to blow things up. I want to be very careful because when I think of like food system change, the amount of calories involved in our current setup, there's a lot of things that it does right. And I know I'm, I'm critiquing it very heavily. You just said that you think that the food system's doing a lot right. Could you just tell us what that is? On a day-to-day -day basis, the food system is still feeding the majority of people in this country. Obviously, we talk about food insecurity that between, on a daily basis, one out of six to one out of 10 people in this country do not have enough food. But we still have to remember that even though they're paying too much for it, five out of six or eight or nine out of 10, etc., are shopping, are buying food. And the fact that we've changed up the assortment in the last 20 years. There's a lot more organic food available. There's a lot more plant-based food available. We've increased the percentage of fresh produce available year-round. We've increased the amount, not to the extent that I would like, but we've still increased the amount of humanely raised animal products, including eggs and dairy, meat, poultry. And we have a lot of folks who are still able to make a living in the food systems. I critique it, but I also acknowledge that there's a lot that we've improved upon and still do right. But I do think based on the current crisis and situation, I think we need to accelerate positive change as opposed to, you know, it's, it's been gradual. You're hoping for a couple percentage point increase every year in these various food trends, as opposed to saying, maybe we need to shift things a little bit more quickly to anticipate. And this is a really simple concept for me. Is this the model you want when the next shit hits the fan? Is this what you want it to look like? The U.S. is the world's largest economy for now. It's just slightly ahead of China. China is probably going to soon be the world's largest economy. But the reason why I talk a lot about the U.S. is just the sheer transactional volume, like the amount of stuff that we're talking about here and how much that you can actually influence on a global scale with some positive changes here in the U.S. I think you can't underestimate that, too. There's a lot of things that I love about it and that I've worked on in it for the last couple decades to improve upon it. But these are things that I think are critical issues that need to be solved because what we've seen during COVID-19 are really systemic 
existential problems with the current model if it continues on as is. This was like the first crisis, COVID-19. And look how terribly things went. I, mean, I think everybody has seen that Instagram, Twitter meme of the three sharks with the diver. When there's the little shark, COVID-19. <laughs> and then there's the next shark, food inflation. And then there's a huge shark, climate change, right? And so I think ownership is one of those things that like ownership implies control and governance that since the 1950s, this country has outsourced management of the food system to agribusiness, which is essentially corporate monopolies in the food sector. And I think we need to re-examine that control and, and figure out ways to democratize and spread out that ownership and control because the current model is obviously failing. Luisa, we spent a lot of time together thinking and speaking about products that are both good for us and the planet. Yes, we do. Well, I want to tell you about one of the show's partners, New Hope Network, who helps support these kinds of products. Don't they run those big conferences like Natural Products Expo West and East? They do indeed. And as well as running events, New Hope is a media and business intelligence company that covers natural product trends, industry insights, and marketplace data that help educate the industry about key issues. Things like regenerative agriculture, sustainability, responsible sourcing, and a whole lot more. And they're proud sponsors of New Food Order because they want to help support conversations that bring radical transparency to our food system, that advocate for using business as a force for good, and that drive the changes we want to see in the world. New Hope is inviting us all to join the movement at its Natural Products Expo and on newhope.com. ESG, Environment, Social and Governance, is a term that's got way more traction today than it did in my early days as a reporter. And it's created a growing pool of impact investors. Investors who want to do good for the planet as well as their bank accounts. Yes, and Foodshot, one of our supporters for this show, is a great resource for those investors to find truly worthy investments. Absolutely. Foodshot unites investors with entrepreneurs innovating for a better food future. Each food shot, or a moonshot for better food, represents a key opportunity to transform the food system. They have active food shots in innovating soil, precision protein, and biofoods, exactly the topics we're exploring on this show. You can learn more about Foodshot and their portfolio of groundbreakers at foodshot.org. And organizations looking to join the Foodshot network can email info at foodshot.org. Making food delivery a public good? I mean, holy hell. (laughs) That's such an original idea. I've never thought about that before, Louisa, and I kind of feel like it's brilliant. But even more than that, it's exactly the kind of that out-of-the-box thinking I think we need to tackle our social and climate crises. Again, I'm not sure if that's what we should do, but it's just expands your mind. And it brings me back to Julia Collins' comment last week about her four-year-old rewriting the rules. I mean, it is an original and imagined idea in some ways, Danielle, but that it also isn't. The concept is cool and I like it, 
But remember, government-run things are generally shit and are prone to so much disaster. Look at trash collection in New York. It's like the worst thing I've ever experienced. And that is publicly run municipal thing. And that's what he's suggesting for food delivery. Just just putting it out there. Like people won't get their food on time. The food will probably spoil. You'll arrive with smashed eggs. So that's why I was just like, I've been on a bit of a journey the last couple of days being like, I definitely want to push these boundaries of what's possible. But I also, let's not give too much airtime to ideas which could actually really suck and but I, don't I don't well we don't know that it would suck i, well, I mean, look at but like let's look at the examples though what are the municipal but, things that we have out there what are the municipal services that you tell me run really well like clockwork which are based on state funding we're currently having horrendous train strikes in london all the time so then i mean, food, I mean food, the food delivery, delivery workers, workers they're already strike. striking. They are striking. They're striking when the companies are private or on the public markets. They're already striking. Yeah, but, but people aren't relying on them because at least they know they're paying for a service. But Louisa, you have services, though, where these delivery workers are making zero dollars. So are we having this consumer centric model where we get our food delivery at the expense of living wages and well, no, I don't think you do. if, stri- if, you're, if you're striking, if you're striking, you're not going to get that food delivery. Because it's not going to be, the app is going to say, you can't get it today because there's not going to be someone to deliver it for you. However, if it's a public service, you're going to be expecting to get it every Monday or every Tuesday or however they choose to organize it. And if they go on strike, you're just not going to get it. And exactly what Errol said, let's do away with bonuses and yada yada. That sounds shit. Sounds really shit. (laughs) And at least some of these drivers, in some instances, they actually managed to get some stock options in the early days like Deliveroo and so on, some of them got to sell them in the IPO. That was an incentive. But what happened with Deliveroo as it was preparing, the amount of strikes that were going on with Deliveroo, I mean, Deliveroo is a perfect example of a company whose valuation was slashed because they're workers. But then that worked out in what you and Errol want because the company and the executives didn't get the returns they wanted, but the workers did and had they say, didn't they? I'm not saying that this is what I want. It was such a provocative (laughs) idea that I want to explore it more deeply. And also, I want to say that if we look at things that are government run right now, how might you redesign that model? Right. Or what does a public private partnership look like? I just like the idea of pushing boundaries and not accepting that our current status quo. And it's a thought experiment. I mean, the fact that he shared this idea And that we have to think about our response to it as we're putting together this podcast. You just said it's taken you on a multi-day journey. Like that in of itself is useful. And if anyone listening to this podcast, this is the experiment. Now, sure, I am more prone to be open to these wild radical ideas. Sure. It's not, not... well, first of all, it's not actually that radical. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. It's not that radical because stuff has been nationalized in the past and then privatized and yada yada. So it's not really. It's just, yeah, it's nationalizing a, a, a currently private sector. So part of me is like, oh God, that sounds like a terrible idea. But as you said, this is all about expanding our minds and maybe it wouldn't be 100% as Errol describes it or imagines, but some kind of form of it could certainly be interesting, particularly as food delivery startups and companies are not doing well. And we're seeing a lot of failure in that space. I can't even 
The faces that Louisa is making at me. How do you, how would you even describe what she just did? She just stuck her hand on her nose and started waving her fingers. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So good. I do love you, Errol. So we have so many new friends joining us on this journey and We want to make sure you know that both Food Tech Connect and AgFunder have amazing weekly newsletters that track all the business tech and investment trends from farm to fork. Absolutely. They are brilliant and they come out on two different days of the week, which is great. So Danielle's is on a Tuesday and ours comes out on a Thursday evening or maybe a Friday morning, depending where in the world you are. And they feature interviews with executives at food and agriculture companies, food tech, ag tech startups. We have news so you can stay completely up to date with our industry. Yes, we're also tracking things that are happening in the advocacy space as well, policy. We have people that tell us all the time that it's a one-stop shop. It's all they need to know. So if you want to subscribe, we've made it super easy to subscribe to both of our newsletters. Go to newfoodorder.org and just sign up for the newsletter and you'll start getting both of our newsletters in your inbox. Okay, so with this episode, and in a way with that last one with Julia, we really started dipping our toes into the ocean that is business model innovation. And right after the holidays, we're going to jump into that water, Danielle. But I'm really looking forward to getting into the weeds with everyone next year. And I really hope that some of the things covered by Errol today have set the cogs turning in preparation. Yes. And remember, if you have any thoughts, feedback, or questions relating to business models, then please, please, please get in touch with us. You can share on your favorite social platform and tag us, or you can leave a voice note on our website at newfoodorder.org. And if you get them in quick, we might even be able to include them in some of our business model episodes that are going to be coming out in the beginning of the year. So now to the homework part of the episode. We don't want to give you too much this week because it is the holidays, but we've got a very simple activity that we hope you could all do as you sit down to tuck into holiday meals and just have a thought for where did the food on your plate come from and also how much it cost. Yeah, I'm definitely going to be thinking about that over the holidays. And we're not trying to ruin anyone's dinner or make anyone feel guilty. But we just want to encourage you to be mindful and to start thinking about some of the concepts that we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks within the context of your life, your business, your choices. Yeah. And so please do share any reflections on this with us and get in touch, as Danielle mentioned, on those platforms. Please also continue to share the podcast with your networks, tag us and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Yes, it means the world to us. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to drop a couple of special mini episodes. So do keep an eye out for those and have a happy, happy holidays. (laughs) (gasps) Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everyone, and a very happy and abundant new year. A huge thank you to Foodshot Global and New Hope Network for sponsoring the show. New Food Order is brought to you by AgFunder and Food and Tech Connect. This episode was produced by Anna DeWolf Evans with production support from Pamela Rothenberg. The editor is Mercy Barno and the project manager is Patrick Carter at Co-Fruition. Our original theme music is from Rodrigo Barbera 
And the designs you see in our artwork are from Lola Nankin. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. The only thing is, is just trying to keep it fun because I realize these intros and outros drone on a bit. I'm just trying to think of something to keep them listening. A food-related joke. Christmas joke. Hilarious food-related jokes that only a dad would love. Perfect. What do you call a fake noodle? An impasta. (laughs) There you go. What's the best food to eat before a workout? Muscles. (laughs) That's perfect. How fast is milk? It's pasteurized before you know it. That is so good. (laughs) This is like my Um, absolute like sweet spot of humor, by the way. Oh, this is a really good one for you and me, Danielle. What did the pecan say to the walnut? (laughs) What? We're friends because we're both nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what do you get when you put three ducks in a box? (laughs) What? A box of quackers. <laughs> so ridiculous. I, I'm so glad that we've hit on Louisa's humor. This is it. This is it in a nutshell. Really just dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. Want to hear a joke about pizza? Never mind, it's too cheesy. <laughs> oh, I'm going to be telling these all Christmas now. Co-fruition. Okay,